Greetings! Thank you for joining me for quite excellent episode number 37. Today we'll be listening to the first of two poems that I think are worth thinking about together as a pair, despite being separated by nearly 70 years. The first of these is Harlem from Langston Hughes, which I am pulling from the fourth edition of the Siegel Book of Poems, edited by Joseph Kelly. But before we get to Hughes, we need to return to last week's poem, The Promise, from Jane Hirschfield. This poem was a nice and I think fairly straightforward one, with its clear shift from the natural world that refuses to stay in the first five stanzas to the easily answered promise to do so always in the sixth. That doesn't mean there wasn't some other depth to this poem, though. So here it is. The Promise by Jane Hirschfield Stay, I said to the flowers. They bowed their heads lower. Stay, I said to the spider, who fled. Stay, leaf. It reddened, embarrassed for me and itself. Stay, I said to my body. It sat as a dog does, obedient for a moment, soon starting to tremble. Stay to the earth of rivering valley meadows of fossilized escarpments of limestone and sandstone. It looked back with a changing expression in silence. Stay, I said to my loves. Each answered, always. Okay, uh, we're actually going to start talking about this one from the back, uh, with the last stanza, where the loves answered, always. Many students uh, focused on this, actually fewer than I thought, but enough that I, I think it's a good place to begin. A student says the author tries to represent how the seasons change, uh, the one, but the ones who love them will continue to do so no matter what time of year they are. Their love is eternal, not seasonal, not, not affected by time. Uh, another student notes that everything changes, and this poem represents that, except for your loves. These things hold steady, even as the earth eventually changes, even as things that you can't control change, with the argument being, according to another student, that being loved is something that is mostly not found in nature. It's not bound by nature. So they truly can promise, maybe with accuracy, that they will stay. And it's the ones that really love you that do that, that make that commitment and and do stay with you. Now, of course, the majority of this poem seems to be focused on the natural imagery, and I asked students to write about it, so it makes sense that we spent quite a bit of time with it. A student says that nature tends to be a common theme when it comes to poetry, just because of how flexible it can be. That's true. We personify nature frequently in poems. Uh, It's symbolic. Often, it's used in a variety of ways. But I think it's kind of interesting, this is Leiden interjecting, that this is a poem how inflexible nature is right? Like, of course, the natural world changes, but not to us, not when asked. On that point, it is definitively fixed, right? A student says, and there's a few parts to this, that the natural imagery is used to express the world's lack of permanence. The earth and all its collective features are so intelligently aware that the speaker has no say in what happens to the world. It squeamishly looks back on them without a word. And the student continues and says, I feel if I had to summarize this poem into a sentence, it would be, quote, the forces of nature are ever-changing, but love is steadfast and forever, which I think is delightful. I really like that take. Building off of that idea, a student says that the natural imagery in the poem makes me come to the conclusion that the speaker lives in a beautiful world, 
but then maybe it's losing its color, which brings me into the third part of the analysis that students did. And that's that many saw a kind of fear of loss and fear of being alone in this poem, which I think is pretty common. I think it's a natural human experience. A student said, the reader has shown that they are not alone in a world where they feel very alone. The author uses natural imagery to show that even out in the world, the narrator feels alone in a world that's filled with beauty. They're apart from it. They're not allowed to be connected to it for too terribly long, right? Another student says that this is a poem about emotional and physical dependency in relationships represented through nature. This is nature functioning as a symbol, as an analogy, right? The speaker continues to say the word stay, the beginning of each stanza, indicating this need for closeness. And there's a logical extension here from another student that says the narrator wishes to not be alone and hopes everything will always stay the same around them. They seem to have a difficult time letting go emotionally. Another notes the speaker feels that she lives in a world where she's losing things. The things around her make her happy, but they're, they're going away and she doesn't want to lose them. There's fear of that loss there. Another student says that the speaker doesn't want things to change, not even the seasons. Everything should be the way it is because it's needed and satisfying and that kind of thing. The natural imagery shows that she's disappointed in change. The things you love the most, thankfully, won't change in that way. They'll always love you, this poem seems to say, and the student seems to argue. There were others, though. Uh, part of this connection to loss and a fear of loss and being alone, uh, students connected to like childhood, with a student saying that this is a poem that's about a child who believes that they have control, that they can tell things to say. But of course, the only things that actually listen to them are those closest, like the family. The imagery shows how much the child expects from the world, but how only a small portion of it can really deliver. A student points to uh, the lines that say, the leaf reddened, embarrassed. And they felt like this felt pretty familial specifically. Uh, it reminded them of the way that parents, mothers, fathers can embarrass their children, right? Um, with another saying uh, that it seems to me that this fall season that it's talking about uh, had to do with the author not wanting the tree leaves and, uh, to fall or the tree to change. And the tree doesn't want that either. But of course, it happens. Winter is coming, right? Change comes no matter what. That's a hard concept for children, for young people sometimes. There was one read connected to childhood that I thought was a really interesting take I'm going to share with you, although I'm not sure I agree with all of its points. The student says that the poem shows the trauma of what it's like to be put up for adoption, going through foster care, and people not wanting them. So they stay in the system. So they ask people to stay. They ask things to stay. I'm not sure that this poem actually allows something quite so terribly specific to be supported by the text, but I do think that what this reading is doing is capturing wonderfully the kind of emotional stakes that are here the kind of need the kind of hope the kind of loss the kind of desperation maybe um and i think there's a reason between this reading and the connections to childhood because there, there's something that's very fragile and delicate in this repeated asking to stay and the continued response from the natural world that says no i won't or can't or don't want to Right? 
And yet, despite all of that, um, I had at least one student who described this poem as wholesome, which I really do agree with. Uh, I think it does feel very comforting, especially by the end. That that darker emotional reading, I think, leans really heavily into some of the raw emotion that's in this poem. It's important in the poem, and it's easy to overlook if you focus just on the last stanza that, of course, reassures you that your loves are always there. Now, of course, there's always some really isolated readings that I wanted to pull up. Um, one student suggested that this is about humans trying to control everything in their environments. We always want to contain and tame nature, but of course that's not possible. Maybe not even necessary or good. Uh, another student points to the line where it talks about it, uh, the body being obedient like a dog for a moment, soon starting to tremble. And the student connected this to the way that we can have mentors and people that try to guide us, um, but the students that are attempting to live up to those expectations try to follow instruction, but of course, sometimes fall short. They can fail. And another one, uh, which I think has a lot of merit actually, suggests that this is a poem that's really about the cycle of life and death. Uh, the student refers to all the natural imagery that's personified, like the flowers that are bowing, like they're dying, uh, the leaves that change in old age. And then it, of course, specifically says, my body is obedient for a moment. This is specifically old age, where you start to lose control of all your faculties. And so the student argues that this is a poem that's really about how unforgiving the passage of time is. And I would add on to that. And maybe that's what makes the importance of the loves all answering always so important, so significant for us. Yeah, fantastic analysis all around uh, for a poem that on the face of it felt pretty straightforward. I really think we dug in deep and got a lot of good stuff out of it. So our next poem is Harlem by Langston Hughes. This is a poem that actually comes out of a larger work, a book-length poem or a collection of poems just depending on the publication that was published in 1951, originally titled The Montage of a Dream Deferred. There's some important context to this poem that I have to hit first. Harlem was a center of African-American culture, a place where artists, musicians, poets, novelists, philosophers had been creating black cultural identity in America since the 1920s at least. But it was chronically poor, underfunded, and a central location for the growing civil rights movement. American soldiers had returned from World War II, but black soldiers frequently returned with less opportunity for employment. They weren't always eligible for programs that secured returning vets homes and loans and things like that. So they come back into communities that are still horribly segregated too, despite having served in the military, sometimes in less segregated environments. The Brown v. Board of Education decision that would formally desegregate schools in 1954 was still a ways off. And even further off was Ruby Bridges, who wouldn't be the first black child to enter a desegregated school until 1960. She hadn't even been born when the Supreme Court decided that she should have access to desegregated education. And then she was escorted to her school by National Guard soldiers who had to protect her from a white mob demanding that she leave. And all of this was 10 years after the poem we were about to read was written. When Hughes asks about a dream being deferred, that is pushed back or delayed, this delay might be worth considering, even as it followed his poem by many years. And there may be other delays, other dreams, that are worth bringing up. So this is a poem about being held back, and wondering what happens 
when you're held back for too long, and about how long a community can be held back. And this is our secret passphrase, held back. Here's the poem. Harlem by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore, and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? Students, be sure to use the phrase held back, or any version of it, in your response. This poem uses some very visceral imagery, and then if you decide to use the word imagery, do me a favor, put an adjective in front of it. Nearly everything uses imagery in some way, so saying that a poem does too, it doesn't really say anything. But saying a particular kind of imagery is used, that's fantastic, that's the good stuff. Get that in there. We, again, have stanzas, so be careful with your forward slashes if you quote from two different stanzas. You'll need that double slash in that case. The poem uses many question marks, and if you quote them, include them inside the quotation marks. Don't be afraid to answer any of the poem's questions. It actually doesn't answer them itself, so maybe you can. Remember to complete your paragraph-length response by Wednesday, November 19th, and two replies to the responses of your peers by the Friday that ends the week. Your paragraph-length response should include a tag and make a claim in the opening sentence or two. Then support that claim with short quotations from the poem and commentary that explains how those quotations support your claim. Be sure to read the assignment instructions for a full breakdown of the expectations. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or would like me to direct an eye toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 37 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent. Excellent.